Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Hi, my name's Rachel Berkowitz, and I'm speaking to you from Yerushalayim, where I live and I spend my time teaching Mishnah, Talmud, and Halakha at the Pardes Institute. I'm very excited to be learning Mishnah with you today because I actually love learning Mishnah. If I could travel back in time and go to any time period, the period I'd love to visit would be the time period of the Tanaim, of the sages of the Mishnah. I would most like to meet Rabbi Yehuda Nasi who edited the Mishnah in around the year 220. The closest I ever came was to visit Sipori, the town in the Galil where he lived his last days, and um, there's excavations of, from that time period. And one Chalamoid Sukkot, they had a living museum where people dressed up, and there were Tanaim dressed up, and there were Romans, and there were pagans, and you could go to Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's Beit Midrash, and you could hear them arguing about the laws of Sukkah. Of course, they always kept pretending that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was coming any minute. He's coming, he's coming, and we never got to meet him. But um, that would be my dream, to be able to sit down and, and have a conversation with him. And the reason that I love learning Mishnah so much is because I really, truly believe that it's more than just a law book. Um, it's really a window into the theology and philosophy of the rabbis. And rabbinic Judaism is really what shaped the Judaism we know and love today. The Mishnah, just when you learn it, you feel the energy and the creativity of the different rabbinic voices, you know, in dialogue with each other, addressing what I believe to be the most important questions that are still relevant for us today. What does it mean to be a Jew? How does one have a relationship with the divine? How do we build Jewish community? How do we create Kedusha in this post-temple age? There's so many more questions. I think even those core ones, almost every tractate of the Mishnah touches on, and I hope that even today I'll be able to show that to you. What I think is so wonderful about this project of us learning together is that sadly, a lot of times the study of Mishnah is relegated to the realm of children because the Hebrew is actually relatively easy as compared to biblical Hebrew. Um, You could start learning it at a younger age and then only when you become an adult, then you start learning Gemara, which is the be-all and end-all. And I love learning Gemara as well, but um, I think that sadly, the study of Mishnah in its own right had a little bit been forgotten by adults. And really, Rabbi Huda Nasi edited this work as a whole unit. It was meant to be a cohesive whole, which one could study and not learn one Mishnah, then flip five pages of the Gemara and get to the next one, but that you should learn it as a coherent structure. And I believe that when you do, you see beautiful themes and literary uh, motifs coming to the core, which really raise these core issues that I mentioned. And I hope I'll be able to show you an example of that today. So what we're learning together is Masechet Trumot, the tractate of Trumot, which deals with one of the um, agricultural gifts that the Jewish people give to the priests. And before we delve into the chapter itself, I need to, of course, I think, give you some background information so you can understand what's going on here. On the one hand, this sounds very foreign to us priests, agricultural gifts, sounds like the time of the temple. But actually, of all the things I hope to show you, that Masachet Trumot is one of the more, most relevant ones today. So Sefer Bamibar Lamed Vav in Numbers 36 
where it defines the special gifts that the priests get, it mentions that the Jewish people have to give from their oil and their wine and their grain to the priests. Now, part of this is practical. The priests are serving in the temple. They're doing work in the temple. They don't own land. And it's the Jewish people's responsibility to support them. They need to eat. They need, right, they're eating some of the meat from the sacrifices, but they need vegetables. They need carbohydrates. And it's our job to support them. That's the practical side. The Torah itself delineates that this is part of the sanctity of the priests themselves um, and part of their special chosenness that God has chosen them to do this work. And there's the chosenness of Eretz Yisrael, of the land, that they get these special gifts. Um, so the Torah listed those specific food products, but really the rabbis expand it and they say that the agricultural gifts can be given from any food that is grown um, in the land of Israel. And this only applies to food that comes from the land of Israel. And the Jewish people are required to donate this to the priest. And this is called Truma Gedola, the great donation. Um, literally, Truma probably comes from the idea of raising something up, Romain. And it's the first one of all the tithes. Later on, you're going to learn another tractate that talks about what we give to the Levite, etc. But we're focusing on the Kohen. Now, the Torah itself does not give any measure how much should we give to the Kohen? It does not say. And in theory, from Torah law, on a heap of grain, maybe just even give one grain, you know, one grain, and you would have fulfilled your obligation. Obviously, the rabbis in our tractate discuss this in a more concrete manner. And so in Mishnah chapter four, Mishnah three, they give a number of different measurements. They say, Ayin yafeh, a really lovely portion, if you're going to really be generous that you could give to the priest, would be one fortieth of whatever if you have a, a storeroom of grain. or And so from that unit, you give a fortieth, 2.5%. That would be a ayin yafeh. Or there's benonit, the average, the medium, sort of the norm. That would be one fiftieth, which would just be 2% of whatever you're, you've harvested. Or then they even tell you vahara'a, like the stingy, miserly person might only give 1 60th. That's 1.6%. And that is rabbinic suggestion. So you see, there isn't one concrete amount, but there's a suggested normative amount. And the rabbis don't put a maximum on it. You could be as generous as you want, but that was the minimums they discussed. Now, what's interesting about Truma is that it's Kodesh. It has Kedusha to it. It has holiness to it because it's considered part of this work of the temple, even though it's not directly linked to the temple, but it's linked to the priests. And because of that, both the food itself and the Kohen, when they eat it, have to be in a state of tahara, of ritual purity. The Kohen can eat the truma, and so can anyone in his household. The women in his household, the servants in his household can eat truma, but they all have to be in the state of tahara. They have to be in a state of ritual purity. Now, this is taken very, very seriously. A Yisrael, a non-Kohen, is not allowed to eat from his or her produce before truma has been taken. So produce without truma taken is called tevel, and there's a serious biblical prohibition against eating from it. If you eat from food that has not been tithed, you will receive a divine death, karate. And so too, if a Kohen eats truma without him being in a state of tara, or if a non-Kohen eats truma, even if they are in a state of tara, even if they're ritually pure, and they do this on purpose, either one of them, so too the punishment is karate. 
we could have a whole class on what that means. Some type of death by the hand of God, a cutting off from the Jewish people. That's if you do it on purpose. If you do it accidentally, our track eight discusses this in full. Um, if you do it bishkaga, don't worry, you're not going to die. But you first and foremost have to repay back the value of what you ate, the karen. And then there's actually a knas, there's a fine. You have to add an additional chomish, you have to add an additional 20% of the original value. So if the Kohen had already appropriated the truma and owns it and you ate his truma, you have to pay it back to the owner. The fine, the fifth, the chomish you can pay to any Kohen. It's sort of like you've defiled the sanctity of all Kohanim and you can pay back the fifth. If truma itself becomes tamay, then you are required to destroy it. Um, it can't be eaten by a Kohen no matter what state it is. Um, what's interesting is the Kohen can benefit from it. Only the Kohanim. We're going to look at that a little. So you have to destroy it. Usually that means you could feed it to the Kohen's animals. It could be burned and you could use the fire to cook something. Or if it's oil, you could burn the oil and use the light. The Kohanim could use this defiled truma. It's also theirs. Um, today, we are still required to observe the laws of truma. Anything that is grown in Israel, we are required to tithe and in theory give to a Kohen. The problem is that we're not exactly sure who a Kohen is. There is a suffix to their yichas, to their lineage, even though I guess now you can do genetic testing. Yes, your father was a Kohen and your grandfather was a Kohen, but we don't know exactly who are the real Kohenim going back. And more importantly, basically everyone is Tameh, everyone is ritually impure. We've come into contact with dead bodies, dead animals, and we don't have the temple to do the special ritual of the red heifer to make us Tahor again. And so the Kohenim could never even eat this truma. So we, the Yisrael, are required to tithe, but uh, we can't give it to anyone. So because of this, we aren't required to give those measurements that I said earlier, but any small measurement is enough, like the Torah law. And then you have to just treat it with respect, wrap it nicely till it decays. You can't just throw it into the garbage. I believe in Israel, the major um, supermarkets, or I guess the food companies beforehand, give all this produce to the zoo, and the animals in the zoo eat it. And in Israel, basically, it's taken care of for you. If you go to any major supermarket chain, you'll see a sign in the vegetable section saying that the tithes have been taken and you don't have to worry about it. Actually, for you guys living in the UK, things become more interesting because now with modernity, we get produce from all over the world. And I did a quick Google on the Tesco site and actually, numerous amounts of the vegetables and fruit there come from Israel. There are ones called Jaffa. There were Jaffa clementines. That's obvious. On sale, two, uh, two bags for $2.50. And there, it's obvious even, you can look, it tells you where it comes from, that it comes from Israel. But many of the other citrus, there are oranges, grapefruits, even limes. We don't get limes here, but you got them. Um, cherry tomatoes. Tesco all listed them as coming from Israel, which causes a problem because the Israeli rabbit and the food exporters do not tie the food before they send them to Chutzlaretz, to outside of Israel. So anyone who is concerned with this halacha, I would advise you to consult your rabbi. And I saw on the United Synagogue website that it talked to you about how you would tie this food. So you would need to check where your fruits and vegetables come from. And the Tesco website listed it, I assume on the packages, it says which ones come from Israel. And you would still today need to be concerned with tithing the food and then putting that small bit aside. Okay, let's jump in and learn Mishnah, because that's why we got together. Mishnah Trumot has 11 chapters, and some of those chapters cover the basic ideas that I just explained to you. It discusses who can give Truma, who's eligible to do it, how it's done, the specifics of how it's done, what food may or may not be, what the measurements of, what the, what's the specifics of the verbalization that I need to do, what if I make mistakes? 
mistakes? What if two food groups get mixed together? What if something that's pure gets mixed with impure? How do I deal with it? What if I've said the wrong thing? Can if things be mixed together, can the truva be nullified in some way so I don't have to consider the whole thing wholly and give it away to the Kohen? Um, what if I made a mistake and I ate it when I wasn't supposed to, those laws that I talked to you about? What if I plant seeds from truma and then new crops grow? Can the status of truma ever be lost? What about the sort of garbage in the refuge? Does that still have a holiness or can it lose after it's been thrown away by the Kohen? Can it lose its truma status? And what about truma that's become tameh, as I talked to you? Can it be used? How can it be used? Um, so those are the main topics. And I want to delve in and show you some of the excitement of actually learning. What's really interesting about Masechet Trumot is that although this is all about the Kohen and special Kohen status, it's actually not taught to us from the perspective of the Kohen, but rather from the perspective of Israel, the regular Jew. That is what's very fascinating about Truma, because we said that the Kohen has special status, he's holy, and the Truma itself has status, it's holy, but it's actually the Israel, the non-Kohen, the Israelite who creates that Kedusha. We choose which kind of food are we going to make? Which bit of my food am I going to give? How much to give? I verbalize and separate. I can say, this portion is what I'm going to make holy. I, the Israel, turn this regular food into holy food. And that is fascinating. What's also really interesting is Masechet Shumot is being codified post-destruction. There isn't a temple anymore. A lot of the holiness that we had with the temple has stopped. And in fact, the Kohanim don't need to be supported anymore. They probably are farmers now too, because they don't have work in the temple. But yet we continue to do this act. It's one of the few holiness mitzvot that we can continue to do without the temple. And that stems from the fact that we still have the holiness of the land. We might not have the physical location of God's holiness, but we have the holiness of the land and the food that grows from it. And interestingly, the main Kedushah now is coming from the Israelim and their avodah of creating truma. And I think it's specifically this message that Rabbi Yehuda Onesi wants to focus on, and we're going to look at a mission in specific. You might have thought that the concept of Kohanim creates a hierarchy of holiness and a special holiness, and that that holiness is genetic, only Kohanim, not Yisrael. But yet, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is going to be doing a blurring of the boundaries that I think is going to be very interesting to show us about the holiness of the whole Jewish people and that how we have the power to create Kedusha ourselves. And I hopefully get to show it to you by reading. What I love about Mishnah that I mentioned before is that uh, it's edited in such a beautiful way. There's poetry here. There's specific of language and literary structure. I believe in any Mishnah you can find, you can see this. What's incredible about Masachet Trumot is the envelope structure that exists within the entire tractate, right? I told you it's 11 chapters long, but fascinatingly, the first Mishnah of the whole tractate and the last Mishnah of the whole tractate have a similar word in it. And it's not a common word. And when you see that, you know, ah, lights. Rabbi Yudinasi wants to tell us something. And he uses envelope structures all the time. Sometimes he does it within a chapter. And so let's see what he wants to tell us here. Okay. The first Mishnah says, Chamisha lo yitramu. There are five types of people who actually cannot turn regular food into holy food and donate it to the, to the Kohen. V'im tarmu ain truma tam truma. And if they did it, 
doesn't work, they're incapable of doing it. The rabbis group together in one halachic category, a person who is both deaf and mute, a person who has an intellectual disability, and a minor, all of whom are assumed to lack the cognizance and intellectual capabilities to intentionally transform mundane food into truma. And someone who cannot donate from something he does not own or she owns. That's the first sentence. And then we have Nochri Shitorim et Shel Yisrael Afilu Bershut Ein Trumato Truma. And a non Jew that sets aside, right, this Truma of a Yisrael, even if the Yisrael gave him permission, his creating of the Truma doesn't make it Truma. So this is a fascinating beginning, right? Rabbi Huda Nasi opens by telling us who can't do it. But by telling us who can't do it, he tells us something about the power of who can. First of all, how do I change regular food into holy food? It all is about the thought process. It's all about the intention. And therefore, the group of people who are not capable of that type of dot, that type of thought process, are not able to do it. I have to be able to think. I'm taking regular food and I'm creating holiness from it. So the Cheir, Shota, and Katan, they are incapable of doing it. Obviously, if I, I want to have control over an object and I'm going to have a radical change in it, it has to be something that I own. I can't go around doing that for other people and making their food codish and then they can't eat it or can't use it. I have to own it myself to be able to do that. Obviously, if I'm just giving something away, I have to own it. But I think that the transformation is the important part. And now we get to the last line that has our key word in it. And that is the line about the non-Jew. And the non-Jew cannot do this on my behalf, even if I give him permission to do it. Which is interesting, because normally I can appoint messengers, I can appoint a shalich to do mitzvot for me. And even I sometimes can appoint a non-Jew. But for the, the messenger to be able to do the mitzvah for me, it basically says, shalich adam kamoto, that the messenger is the same as the person. And here it seems to be saying that Rabbi Yudin wants to say, when I'm talking about creating kedusha in this area, I want to tell you there's a boundary. You can't have a non-Jew that's going to be the same as the Jew. There's something special about how I'm defining what the Jew is in this relationship. Interestingly, for those on the side, um, if you look in chapter 3, Mishnah 9, it actually says a, a non-Jew on their own with their own prudus can give truma which is, we could talk about a crazy idea that a non-Jew could make something Kodesh and then had the ramifications of Karet. I think it's the extension of the idea that I'm trying to play out for you about the potential of Kedusha in anyone. As a group, though, non-Jews aren't doing mitzvot. They aren't thinking about making Kedusha. And if the whole thing is about intent, right, he might be able to physically separate from me, but he doesn't have that intent. He's not the same as me. On it, if there's a rogue non-Jew somewhere who wants to do this, who understands about intent, they're capable. That was Mishnah number one. I'm well over my time. I hope you're so excited about Mishnah learning as I am that you're going to bear with me for two more seconds. And then let's go to the last Mishnah of the whole chapter. And this Mishnah is also mind-boggling. We're at the place where we're talking about Mishnah that has become defiled. And we're talking specifically about oil that has become defiled that needs to be burned. But I can use this for light, and normally only the Kohen can use it. But here our Mishnah says, Madlikim sheven sreifra bebate knesiot, ubate midrashot, umavod ha'afelin, v'agabe cholin bershuta Kohen. I can light this defiled shemen that has to be burned in the house, in the synagogues, and in the study halls, and in the dark alleys, and to light up the room for a sick person. 
Bereshut HaKohen. See that word Reshut again? Before we had Reshut Yisrael, the Nochri Kants, and now we have Bereshut HaKohen. If the Kohen gives me permission. And then get this next clause. Ba Yisrael Shenesait LaKohen, Vihi Lumuda Eitzel Aviha, Aviha Madlik Bereshuta. A daughter of an Israelite who married a Kohen, and she's often regularly at her father, the Israelite's house, her father can light using this Shemen from the Truma. Birushuta, that same word, just like the Kohen gave permission to use the Shemen in the synagogues, she can give the permission to her father to light up the Israelite house with the Truma Shemen. Then the Mishnah goes on to say, Madlikim bebeit hamishteh avalo bebeit avel, divrei Rabbi Yehuda. We light in the houses of weddings, of celebrations, but not in the house of mourning. These are the words of Rabbi Yehuda. Then there's a machloket. Rabbi Yossi says, no, in the lights of mourning, but not in the lights of houses of weddings. And Rabbi Meir says, in neither. And then the last line of the whole chapter, where Rabbi Yudanasi tells what he wants the halacha to be, Rabbi Shimon matir kan v'chan. Rabbi Shimon says, nope, we use the shlem and shreifa to light up houses of celebration of wedding and to light up houses of mourning. Now, What's going on in this Mishnah? Something fascinating. The Kohen is blurring himself with the Yisrael. He's allowing the Yisrael to use the Shemen. And the linchpin for this, I think, is the woman, the Bat Yisrael, right? Because what's fascinating about women is they can come from the house of Yisrael, but then they can marry into the house of a Kohen, and that can completely change her status. So much so that then she functions like the Kohen. The Kohen gave her shoot to use the oil. She can give her father a shoot to use the oil, can give her father permission to use the oil. Fascinatingly, earlier in the tractate, in Mishnah chapter 6-2, there is a crazy Mishnah that shows this transference that can happen with a woman. And that is the case where a Bat Yisrael, a Israelite woman, accidentally eats truma, totally not allowed, Punishment, she has to repay, not good. But two seconds later, I don't know how much later, she marries a Kohen. She's now changed her status. What does the Mishnah say? Because when she was a Yisrael, it was forbidden, so she has to pay back. That means if this truma didn't belong to anyone, guess who she can pay it back to? She can pay it back to herself. Because right now she's a Kohen. And if it belonged to a Kohen and that she sort of misused it by eating it, she has to pay back to the original owners. But the Chomish, the, the fine that you have to pay to any Kohen, guess which Kohen she can pay it to? She can pay it to herself. Right? So we have this crazy case of a woman that one minute was a Yisrael. She was born a Yisrael. And as a Yisrael, she transgressed. So she has to deal with that obligation of paying back. On the other hand, she's transformed herself into a new person. Now she is a Kohen. So she can pay herself, which is this magical, magical, right? That shows a complete blurring can happen through the vehicle of women. So we see from the comparison of the first Mishnah to the last Mishnah that the Israelite is not linked, is not the same, cannot be the same as the non-Jew, as the Nochri. But the Israelite is within the domain of the Kohen. And the word Rashut, which meant permission, right, can also mean domains, right? I, I, I share, the Israelim and the Kohenim share the same domain of, of Am Yisrael. So much so, listen to the description that we just read in this last Mishnah. 
that the light of Truma, the Shem and Truma, it lights up the entire Jewish world, right? It's writing up her father's house, but it's also lighting up the synagogues and the study halls and the alleyways and the sick beds and places where we're rejoicing in weddings and places where we're sad, right? The entire Jewish world is lit up, can be lit up from this Shemen Srefa, which to me is just a beautiful, amazing image of what Rabbi Yudith Nasi is trying to show us in this post-Mikdash world where we're not exactly sure where is that Kedusha? We still have it. We can give the Kedusha from Eretz Israel. In theory, it's supposed to be going to the Kohanim. But if we can't use it that way, it can be used to light up all the houses of Israel. And it was the Israelites who can create that Kedusha and can benefit from the Kedusha. This links us to the first Mishnah in all of Shas, the first Mishnah in Masechet Brachot, the first line of all of the oral law that Rabbi Yunan Asi wanted to tell us. It says, from when can we read the Shema in the evening? And it doesn't tell us a time like go look at the stars or look on your clock. It says, from the time that the Kohanim come to enter to eat their truma. They have to eat it when they're tahor, when they're ritually pure. If they got impure during the day, they have to wait till sunsets before they can wash themselves and then eat it. That's the answer at sunset. But why tell the entire Jewish people that you could say the Shema when the Kohen eats his truma? Once again, we're seeing that link. We're seeing the link that even post-temple, when we're without the temple, we still have remnants of that Kedusha. And that Kedusha that is manifested in the Kohen, but is really part and parcel of Am Yisrael's Kedusha. That moment of the eating of the Truma is the moment when all of Am Yisrael proclaims their belief in God and recites the Shema. So here in Israel, it's simpler to be a Jew. The supermarkets do this for us. But you luckily in the UK have an opportunity in your own hand to create Kedusha by being mafrish trumot from the vegetables of Eretz Israel. We should all merit to make our houses be lit with Kedusha of Truma. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.